Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 309 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 43 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who is currently in negotiations with his wife about also getting an engine swap done on his car, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Yeah, hey, Robin. It's coming down to tenths of a millimeter. <laughs> you know, it, after seeing the power bump that's potentially there, you know, it gets tempting. It is Tuesday afternoon, November 16th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Brazilian Grand Prix. But, Chris, is there any Formula One news you want to discuss first? Yeah, two, two quick things. Uh, first of all, the final seat for 2022 is being announced today. Alfa Romeo have confirmed that Giovinazzi will be leaving uh, at the end of the year and will be replaced by Guanyo Zhou or Zhao uh, for next season to uh, to race alongside Valtteri Bottas in an all-new driver lineup. And as Haas has shown, having an all-new driver lineup is definitely the way to go when you're a smaller team, so I think that's a great job by Alfa Romeo. Um, obviously, it's not the exact same. Uh, Bottas is not exactly a rookie, but... Uh, my quip stands. Um, I have some... Oh, no, your other news, please. Well, it's not really news, but I did enjoy the pre-Grand Prix interview with Massa and Glock talking about the events at, on the final lap in 2008 where poor Massa oh, was world yeah. champion for about 25 seconds until Lewis Hamilton passed Glock on the last corner to, to take the title. And apparently it was one of the first times that they'd actually really got together and, and talked about it uh, and their experiences post-race. I guess poor old Glock got uh, some death threats and, and all sorts from very unhappy um, fans who thought that he <laughs> may, have, <laughs> may have thrown the position to Lewis, but actually he was just wrestling his Toyota on really worn uh, intermediate tyres or slick tyres, uh, whatever he was on at the time. But uh, yeah, it was, that was a, I thought it was a fun little piece. How did uh, I, I didn't see it myself? How did how did Massa respond to Glock? Was Massa one of the death threats? <laughs> I, you know, Massa Felipe is such a nice guy, isn't he? I think he was quite devastated to hear that Glock had been through that uh, situation, and, and he never felt that he he had done it on purpose. That he didn't blame Glock at all. He, you know, he just saw it as. The way things ended up and you know they talked about his problems earlier in the season where he lost a good finishing spot in Singapore because of a, a refueling issue that was more detrimental to his ultimate chance of, of being world champion than that particular you know uh, finish to the Brazilian Grand Prix so no he seemed he seemed very cool about it and, and uh, was said some lovely things to Timo so it was a nice interview if you if you get a chance to catch it it's, it's well worth a look yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. Felipe does seem just incredibly nice and genuine. You know, definitely wears his emotions on his sleeve. And, you know, just he seems like the kind of person that would be just wonderful to have a beer with and hear some of his stories. But I do have some IMSA news myself. This past weekend was also the running of the season finale of the IMSA championship, Petit Le Mans, down at Road Atlanta. And in that race, championships were decided. So I wanted to give congratulations to uh, the number 31 Whelan Engineering Racing Cadillac DPI car, which won the championship. However, it was Ricky Taylor and Felipe, Felipe Albuquerque um, who racing with Acura for Wayne Taylor, 
that won the driver's championship and then for the manufacturer's championship of course it was cadillac and then for the gtlm championship this is the final year of that championship that went to corvette racing which won um, so chevrolet was a manufacturer and the driver's champions were antonio garcia and jordan taylor which means it was a very good weekend for the taylors um, Wayne Taylor, dad, did not win the championship as a team, but both his kids won their driver's championships. Not bad. Also, you'll notice that both of those are General Motors brands, so a very good weekend for General Motors. But finally, for the uh, GTD class, which is essentially GT3 cars, that went to PAP Motorsports, and that's a Porsche team, and the drivers were Lawrence Vantor. I don't think... They pronounce the TH. I think he's Belgian. Anyway, and uh, Zap and Zachary Robicon, although I might be pronouncing his last name incorrectly. Anyway, congratulations to all of them. Ooh, that was a mouthful, Chris. Yeah, tricky names there, mate. <laughs> there was there was a bit of a UK smug in in that uh, tricky names there, mate. Is, is it, do you know how to pronounce all of these and you're just oh, laughing no, on the inside no. right now? Oh, no, 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 not at all. I wouldn't have done any better. <laughs> anyway, on to the Brazilian Grand Prix. The entire weekend was exciting. It was the third and final uh, sprint race or sprint qualifying or whatever. And it was also kind of in like this emotional lead into like the last four races of the championship that's just heating up and heating up so we really of course we have to start with friday we knew that lewis hamilton was going to get a five place grid penalty because he is he received a new internal combustion engine in the back of his mercedes formula one car so we knew that was going to happen but he uh, he jumped right into the weekend with uh, really strong results on friday I have to say, I'm still recovering. I mean, what an emotional roller coaster the whole weekend was. Uh, there were times where I thought that Lewis's title ambitions were still, uh, still, you know, alive, and other times I thought they were utterly dead. And I thought, you know, it was, it was Max's championship pretty much in the bag. I mean, yeah, with the the penalty, obviously, was disappointing. Um, it was expected that Brazil would be a track that would suit Red Bull and, and Max. So obviously, the last thing you'd want is for Lewis to have to start five places behind wherever he qualifies um but then of course he showed great pace in the friday qualifying session immense pace yeah i mean more than four tenths of a second quicker than max um and so it looked promising that we were going to have a you know a good fight during the sprint and the grand prix uh between the two of them and then it all kicked off post quali um with well and i think it was like late friday night brazilian time anyway Something like 11 o'clock at night that evening is when it was announced to everybody that Mercedes was getting a disqualification for a failed test on their DRS system. Yeah, I mean, it's got really acrimonious, isn't it, uh, between Mercedes and Red Bull and, and Toto Wolff and uh, Christian Horner. I mean, it, it's um, there is now no love lost and the gloves are off and they really both want to beat each other uh, with a real, you know, if there was, there was passion before, but now it's, it's a whole other level. And well, so uh, I yeah. disagree with that actually a little bit, Chris, I don't think, okay. cause I, I don't think there'd been any gloves on between Hamilton and Max for a while. And <laughs> I don't think they've, they've been fighting 
considering no gloves, they've been fighting relatively gentlemanly considering all that. What's different now is the team principals have removed their gloves. <laughs> and I'm, just to be blunt about it, I would not want to take my gloves off in front of Toto. That does not look like a small man. And I'm, I'm not, I do not uh, have tons of interest in having no gloves. But, ah, man, it, it, it seems to me like, as much as anything, Toto Wolf is really starting to feel like there's some disparate moves in decision-making at the FIA level. Well, so the decision to disqualify Lewis, whilst technically meeting the requirements based on how the regulations are written, the, 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 the rear wing failed the test. So when the DRS flap is open, the gap should be no larger than 85 millimetres. Apparently on one side it was 85.2 millimetres, um, so the probe actually showed that it, it, it did meet the requirement, but then when they applied, they can apply up to 10 newtons of force. So when they applied that force to the probe, they were able to push it through the gap. That's indicating that it exceeded the requirement. But the point is that the, the wing had had some sort of failure, um, albeit minor one, which was, all, which was why it wasn't meeting the regulation. And what Mercedes was so unhappy about is that usually if the vehicle the car in some way has been damaged, whether it's during a qualifying or race, then there's some dispensation to allow for the damage and therefore why the car can't meet the requirement. So a good example is, you know, if two cars come together during a race um, and some of the bodywork is is damaged, then obviously you can't uh, expect it to meet the same dimensional requirements. Um, Or weight requirements necessarily. Exactly. And, And what Wolf pointed out was that Red Bull have been having to repair their wings uh, at least on a, a couple of occasions in the in the last few Grand Prix, most notably at Mexico, because they were they were actually cracking, and so they were putting tape on the wing to uh, to make sure it met uh, you know survived through the, the various qualifying sessions, and yet you know nothing was being done to to say that they weren't legal. And the other point that was made is that if you run you know, no checks are being performed between Q1 and Q2. So if Mercedes had run that wing in Q1 and Q2 and then happened to notice the issue and repaired it prior to Q3, then there would have been no problem. And Lewis's fastest lap and, and first place uh, grid start for the sprint would have counted. But because it was noticed after Q3, they were disqualified. So there's a little bit of inconsistency in sort of interpretation of 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 damage and repair to a component before it's assessed and also you know when these are uh, these requirements are enforced now we know that the cars are weighed during live sessions um, but you know obviously the checks are not performed during uh, sessions so it does seem like there's a bit of a gray area there and, and it looks like Red Bull were basically trying to find some other reason to have Mercedes thrown out because they they were very suspicious about the, the, the straight line speed of the car. And so they were looking for things. And, and because Max touched the rear wing of Lewis's car, you know, more scrutiny was then applied to the wing. And then they found this issue. So it feels like a bit of a Red Bull led uh, um, campaign against Mercedes to some degree. Yeah, we have to take a step back and realize that I think it's unlikely Based on the footage I saw, it's not like Max put any real force into what he was doing. I didn't see Mac, Max there with the wrench, or excuse me, Spanner, 
twick, tweaking anything uh, for those few moments he was in, in the car. And Max, in fact, did get a $50,000 or 50,000 pound, uh, either or, it, it, a large amount of money fine for touching the car because it did lead to all this extra scrutiny. But by the letter of the rules, Mercedes broke the rules, and that's why they got disqualified. But just as you said, within that gray area, it does seem to be all on one side going in one direction in terms of Red Bull. They've been playing with their ring ring quite a bit the last few races. And just as you said, Max touched it prior to the issue. So it, it just, I think by the letter of the rules, we have to say it just, it turned out the way it did. But I am sympathetic to why Mercedes would feel a bit short shafted, like third degree treatment here. Yeah, it does sound like that there was a lot of analysis performed on exactly what Max did and touched and how much force he applied. They, they used uh, onboard camera footage um, from, I think, Lewis's rear view camera. And I think also Sebastian Vettel's car was parked in, in a way that gave them a good camera angle. So they did, they did uh, make sure that it wasn't Max who had damaged the wing um, so I, I give, yeah, I think it was due diligence placed there and, and they probably came to the right conclusion that he wasn't the cause of the damage. And I guess he was trying to feel the underside of the wing anyway, because they think that, that maybe they, they're using some sort of flexible surface on the underside of the wing to help the high speed performance. Christian Horner was making comments about that after the race on Sunday, saying that they said Max believes that the underside of the wing is softer than the Red Bulls. But I mean, it's the whatever. I mean, the wing meets the requirements <laughs> So, I, I mean, Red Bull struck me as it, it, really odd. They seemed kind of desperate over the weekend, which, as they were the team who were on the front foot with a great, you know, uh, series of, of results and with a healthy championship lead, I found to be very odd. But their whole language and, and demeanour um, and the way they, they went about their racing was, was kind of like they were the ones trying to play catch-up, not the ones leading the championship. It was weird. Well, I think Red Bull has gotten quite good at the ones playing catch-up. That might be part of it. But uh, it might have ultimately been to their own demise because after all this going down, Hamilton was possessed and just <laughs> insane. So we get to the sprint qualifying. Lewis Hamilton starts dead last. And 24 laps later, he's 10th. No, fifth. he's fifth. He's fifth. <laughs> he's fifth. He starts to race 10th because of the five-place grid penalty because of the yeah. internal combustion engine. So he goes from 20th to fifth, almost, you know, what are we doing? You know, six-tenths of a pa- six tenths of a car pass per lap? I mean, it's insane. Well, and he was fairly close to Perez. I mean, to, to Perez's, uh, you know, to defend his honor, we should say that he was being held up by Carlos Sainz. Uh and probably would have been a little bit further down the road without that. But even so, Lewis basically got onto the back of that battle and probably would have got up to third if the sprint had been a couple of more laps. So, yeah, it was astonishing. I mean, in, in some ways, the disqualification combined with the sprint race made the weekend because it was, it, it was the first time the sprint was worth watching and was phenomenal. Uh, what, but hold on. To see now I'm, you're going to get me pumped up a little bit here. 
the sprint mm-hmm. race was worth watching because of the politics that happened that put the championship contender in the back. This wasn't reverse championship order or any of that nonsense that's being discussed for next year. This was a, a, a collection of unique circumstances that led to the starting grid for the sprint qualifying that we had, and that's what made it as interesting as it was. Well, but now... And colder weather, too. We should add that. Now Ross Braun could take that extra element and add that to the sprint races for next year, the random disqualification dial, so when they spin <laughs> a that wheel. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or that, that one should be... That one should be... Uh-huh. Um, it, oh, man. Yeah, I'm trying to get away... Take it, make it more like X Factor or America's Got Talent or something. So it's just full blown, full blown ridiculous. But yeah, it was an amazing set of circumstances on Friday and Saturday. It should be said that uh, Valtteri Bottas was also quite quick. Valtteri Bottas did end up winning the sprint qualifying and uh, did start Sunday on pole. So uh, both Mercedes were quite strong uh, throughout the weekend. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Saturday before we move on to the Grand Prix? Yeah, I guess a couple of other things to note. So I, I did. Uh, I was surprised that George Russell lost his his fifty six qualifying. Oh, uh, that's winning, right! By a couple of run. tenths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to Latifi. No, it wasn't as much as a couple of tenths. It was it was a small margin, but yeah, I mean, fair a play couple to of tenths of a tenth is what I meant to say. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, but Latifi out qualified him fair and square for the first time. So that's the, you know that's of all the teammates Russell's had since he's been in F one. The first I've time always the told actually... you, Canadian drivers are the best drivers in the world. You just have to give them time, Chris. I've always I've been telling you this for months. Okay. Uh, the the thing, the other thing that caught my eye in the sprint was uh, Carlos Sainz's drive. I mean, what a great drive he put in. I mean, really got a made a fabulous start. Got ahead of of both Perez and uh, Max Verstappen. Wasn't able to keep Max behind for long, but uh, successfully kept Perez behind to the end. And it was a really really strong uh, race by him. Uh, so that that really caught my eye. Um, and then I thought Norris had a really good Saturday. Sunday was a bit downhill, but Norris had a good race to beat both uh, Leclerc and, oh, sorry, a good sprint to beat uh, both Leclerc and Gasly. So those were the standouts for me, other than obviously Lewis, who just was uh, was extraordinary. Yeah, completely agree with you on Carlos Sainz. He drove incredibly well. And also, just generally speaking, it's good for you to give the tip of the hat to Lando Norris because it definitely seems like in terms of momentum, Ferrari does continue to have a bit of momentum on McLaren in general. So uh, the fact that Lando kept them honest was uh, definitely for the good. Although, and I, I do feel, um, I do feel it's important to say that uh, Ricciardo, he he was there. You know, Ricardo wasn't uh, wasn't ways off. They were pretty close to each other. But uh, on Saturday, at least, Lando was doing a bit better. Well, to be fair to Daniel, he was the only driver that gave Hamilton any real problems. I mean, Lewis was pretty much passing people as soon as he got behind them. Uh, but with Daniel, it took him, what, four or five laps to find a way past? So, yeah, Ricardo put a put a decent defense up. So, um, before we get into the race itself, I want to go back to the last podcast where we talked about favorite drivers and favorite teams based on what that poll was but then our own our own personal and Mercedes was one of my favorites and what d- 
decisions Mercedes made going into the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend is one of the reasons why Mercedes is one of my favorite races. To me, I was so just impressed by the decision-making that led to, you know what? If we put a more power, if we put a new engine in Hamilton's car again, it will have low enough wear rate for the last few Grand Prix that we can turn it up a little bit and we don't have to worry about durability as much. So it was basically we can take a five-place griddle penalty for more power for the rest of the season. That, to me, that's very impressive thinking and also shows you the um, immense toolbox that Mercedes has for strategy because they have such a good engine. But I, I, I'm really curious to hear what you think about that because I came, I came away incredibly impressed with that. Yeah, it is interesting, the comparison between the powertrain, power unit degradation between the Mercedes and the Honda. It appears that the Honda is pretty much loses hardly anything in terms of output from the first race to whenever you know its full life is complete and they have to retire the unit whereas the mercedes has quite a lot of drop off apparently over you know the course of however many races they run seven or eight races and so there is a big big change when you go from a you know an older unit to a to a brand new one um as evidenced by by the the the, the speed that lewis demonstrated down the straights so um and just the, the reliability concerns around the Mercedes, it is extraordinary that we've reached this point in the hybrid era where, uh, you know, at one, one stage Mercedes were just so dominant. And now you could argue that maybe Honda has, in some respects, a, a superior power unit. It, it's, it's amazing how it's, it's turned around a little bit. But, but even with that disadvantage, they're, they're figuring out ways to overcome it and give themselves a good chance in, in, the, in the balance of the season. And I agree, that type of analysis where you look at the permutations of, you know, do we take the grid penalty versus the extra horsepower uh, and, and, f- and figure that out on tracks where it's possible to overtake. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's an intelligent approach to overcoming a deficiency. And it was an even better strategy when you think about the fact that it was sprint qualifying, which gave them another opportunity to win some points from pole and get a few and really tighten things up. Of course, that part of the strategy was completely upended by what we discussed happening late Friday. But it was, I think, really good thinking of finding a way to use the weekend to really mitigate the effects of the penalty. And uh, so I came away quite impressed with that. And maybe that's the nerd in me because ultimately I was impressed by their use of just data. I mean, that's ultimately what it came down to is just looking at enough different uh, databases to say, oh, if we do it this way, this comes out to be better than that. You know, it just it wasn't a stroke of genius kind of move. It was just like a let's pour through all this data and see what we can find out. At least that's what I gathered. Yeah, I, gu- I guess they got to the point where they concluded that by managing the remaining power units they had, they probably weren't going to be able to beat Max and Red Bull. So it was better to take a one-off penalty to put them in a better situation for the remainder of, of the season. It was a bit of a bit of a dice roll, wasn't it? Because who knew if if Lewis was going to make that work and, and overcome a five-place deficit. In the end, he had to come, overcome a 25-place deficit. He made it look a little easy in the end. But but ultimately, uh, based on the past couple of Grand Prix, I mean, City in Mexico and US, it didn't look like it was 
uh, gonna, you know, it didn't look like it would be an easy task. So it worked out, and, and now it puts them in a stronger position for the remaining three races. So the, the race starts, and it's a tale of two Mercedes because we had <laughs> Lewis Hamilton starting in 10th in, I believe, 6th position by the end of lap one, maybe 7th. It was 6th, yep. And then we had Valtteri Botas starting on pole, and I believe he was second or third by the end of lap one. So it was a, it was a case of uh, the two Mercedes converging on each other in a way that wasn't healthy. And indeed, oh, I'll just skip ahead a few laps, because of the start that Botas had and the start that Hamilton had, the two drivers ended up swapping positions, gosh, I think less than 10 laps into the race. Yeah, poor old Altery had another pretty awful first uh, first lap of a Grand Prix, didn't he? Two 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 races in a row. He commented after the race that uh, so many people had come up to him telling him how important it was to have a good start, keep Max behind him, and uh, yeah, he he failed uh, dismally. But um, you know, ultimately, he still played his part. He, he was a good team player. He let Mac, uh, Lewis Lewis through. Well, he let Max through, but he let Lewis through fairly easily. <laughs> he, he let them all go. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, took advantage of the safety car to get to get a podium and, and to. Uh, score that a few was extra nice points. for him to have some good luck in terms of pit stops for a change. He has had bad luck there all season. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, beating Perez is what he needs to do, right? And uh, for the for the remainder of the season and, and let Lewis and Max battle it out. And if he beats Perez enough, then Mercedes will win the championship. So he's doing his job. Um, he does need to, he does need to, I mean, his start on Saturday was tremendous and he did a great job to, to defend and keep Max uh, at bay. And yet for some reason, he was like a different driver on Sunday, you know, just seemed to, to be all over the shop in the first uh, half a dozen corners on lap one. So odd. Yeah, and even, you know, leading up to the race, uh, he was grabbed for a quick interview after he parked the car um, ahead of the formation lap. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about it. You know, I, you know, clean side of the track, short run to turn one, you know, should be okay. So he seemed to have relatively high confidence that he, was, he wasn't going to have a problem uh, retaining the lead for this race. And yet... That didn't last not at all, and it was frustrating to see uh, because we have such a tense and tight championship building up here, both drivers and constructors. So to see that play out was disappointing. Anyway, the race started. Um, some laps happened. Drivers were going around the track, whatever. Lap 48. Lap 48, Chris. Hamilton had caught Verstappen. The two were really getting close. Hamilton made a move into turn four. Your thoughts? So... Watching the race live, where we didn't have the benefit of the onboard camera in Max's car, and particularly from sort of one particular angle, it looked like Max steers towards Hamilton or deliberately doesn't try to hug the inside of the corner and, and seems to want to run wide to keep Lewis uh, behind him or force Lewis off the track. I thought that was a, a pretty dirty move by Max, and I honestly was shocked that he didn't get a penalty. But what I will say is that I've, I've had the uh, benefit of seeing the onboard footage today. 
So that's now available on the F1 website. And you can see that he, he is turning hard left throughout the corner. So he doesn't straighten the wheel. He doesn't do anything obviously dirty to try and force Lewis off. He's literally just carried way too much speed into the corner and the car ah, is, is understeering okay. off the track. Okay. So I feel, I feel actually that that information and also the fact that, you know, the race turned out okay anyway in terms of Lewis was able to make a clean pass. I'm happy, I'm happy that he wasn't hit with a penalty and that, you know, the right result happened, that the faster driver was able to make the move legitimately without any contact or penalties. Yeah, and that was the critical thing that we weren't getting is what was Max Verstappen actually trying to do. It was so much... It was so frustrating that we couldn't see Max Verstappen's onboard during that because from the outside perspective, it looked not only that he was trying to push Hamilton off the road, but that he was trying to do it blatantly, like it, not even even trying to make it look uh, inconspicuous. And, you know, to hear that he was just carrying way too much speed into the entry of the corner and understeering off, that's logical, and it does... Okay, it takes away some of the just straight, deliberately trying to drive Hamilton off the road. At the same time, he still carried way too much speed into the corner. Hamilton was right next to him, and they both ended up off the track. Is that still not just poor driving? Like if if this were if this were public roads, and I know <laughs> there's a lot of differences between driving on public roads and racing, but um, that'd be reckless driving. Do you know what I'm saying? Like. It's like, okay, he didn't deliberately try to push him off the road, but he still drove inappropriately to make the corner and to complete the race. Well, so for me, how is that any different to what Alonso did at the US Grand Prix at the end of the straight, where he whistled in way too late on the brakes uh, and, and forced, I think it was Giovinazzi and him, to both go off into the runoff area on the outside of, of whatever that turn is at, at Cota. You know, we then had roles reversed where I think Giovinazzi did the same to Alonso a few laps later. Um, and in both instances, the drivers were told they had to give the places back because you can't, you know, we've been hearing from the stewards since Austria that you can't force another car off the track. You have to give them a car's width. That's what happened uh, with Norris and Hamilton, right? Uh, right. And, and can't gain any advantage as well as a result exactly. of your actions. So now all of that's been thrown out the window and now we've got this let them race mantra where exactly now when you're on, you're being forced on the inside and someone's trying to go around the outside of you, oh, you don't have to use your braking point. You could just whistle into the corner and understeer and, and come what may, you know, that's absurd. You know, and what, what I'm really concerned about is that unless they apply that same standard to the remaining three races, you know, we may have an issue where, Hamilton does that to Verstappen and is then penalised. So you've got, just got to be consistent, right? I think as long as the rules are fair for everybody, all 20 drivers on the grid, and they're applied consistently, that's all we want. But we, they're not. I mean, it, they just seem to make it up race by race or even driver by driver in the same race. I mean, that's not good enough, is it? Yeah, no, I agree. And there, there is also... I'll tell you, the thing that frustrated me the most about what Christian Horner had to say throughout the weekend wasn't any of the rear wing stuff that was going on. I'm tempted to say rear wing gate because everything's a gate here in the U.S. But was when he said Max 
Verstappen raced him hard and Lewis would have done the exact same thing. No, I don't think Lewis would have. I think Rolls reverse Lewis would have made the corner. And I think Rolls reverse it would it would have been similar levels of defense in terms of attempts, but it would have been more disciplined. What's frustrating to me and you know we've talked about this in broader terms about it, there seems to be more respect among each and every driver in IndyCar in terms of giving a lane and these types of things than in Formula One. And, you know, you made the point that's really more the modern era of Formula One. But, boy, oh, boy, I think Max is really pushing the boundaries of even that level of respect amongst the drivers. That's what's really hard for me to swallow is not even consistency of the rules, though I agree with you, but just innate respect you have for other drivers on the road. Hamilton entered that corner ahead of Verstappen. He was a good quarter to half a car length ahead of Verstappen going into corner entry of four. And uh, Verstappen was way late on the brakes, carried extra entry speed as you just discussed, and that's how he pulled it back even again. But he was never back ahead. So if you want to make the argument at corner entry, that was Hamilton's corner, not Verstappen's. Yeah, it did, it did strike me as a really desperate effort to hold on to the lead and one that didn't mind if neither of them left, you know, you know, completed the turn. I think if they were so close to coming into contact, it's, it's remarkable they didn't hit each other. And you sort of, you kind of sense that if, if they'd come together and, and they would have both been out of the race, then Max would have been happy with that result, right? And it's almost like, well, payback for Silverstone. I mean, that's not what we want to see. Uh, they're both incredible drivers. They both had remarkable seasons. And we want to see this fight play out to the end and, and, and a champion crowned the right way. Uh, and it was a little disappointing. I mean, ultimately, I was relieved that Max didn't do anything too desperate later on in the race. And, and Lewis was able to make a legitimate pass that no one can argue about um, and, and pulled away, you know, he was, he was more than 10 seconds up the road by the, by the, the flag. It was an amazing um, differential in performance. Oh, that's because of their soft under rear wing. They, uh, <laughs> so it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, Max still had a great weekend. He only lost five points in the championship to Lewis. Right. Cause because he, he got two points in the sprint qualifying, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and Lewis didn't get the fastest lap because Perez came in and got new tyres to give him to steal the one point away. So on the balance of everything, considering the pace that Mercedes and Lewis demonstrated at Interlagos, you know, really good damage limitation effort. Still 14 points to the good in the championship with three races to go. So it was a good weekend for Max Verstappen. So he doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be taking Lewis out. Uh, to win the championship. He just needs to keep doing what he's doing, drive consistently, drive fast, as he has all season. And he's got a really good shot at being world champion the right way, not not the dirty way. We don't want to see repeats of 94 or 97, right, where, you know, Michael really won the championship in the wrong in the wrong way. I mean, Michael won the championship the right way on five occasions, but uh, on those two, he, he tried to tried to win it the wrong way, in my opinion. And and I, Max is too good a driver, as was Michael, to win the championship that way. He needs to, you know, I think win it fair and square by racing hard on the track and giving each other room. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, no real argument there. You and I are pretty much aligned when it comes to this. Um, I do want to say that Mercedes has officially requested a right of review over that lap 48 incident between Hamilton and Verstappen. We'll see if anything comes of that. Usually the FIA is uh, very good at stonewalling these types of things and just, or not even stone, just being a brick wall and not, not letting it budge anywhere. But we'll see if anything comes of it because it does seem like there is a, a two different standards going on, and it is, it is frustrating. But at the end of the day, I'm actually happy that it happened the way it did in the sense that the review was no further action because Hamilton could regain his composure and did make another pass completely on merit on the track and did so in uh, by forcing Max to the inside of turn one which hurt his exit out of turn one, which gave Hamilton a better, even more uh, more aggressive run on him into turn four, which allowed the pass to be done actually before they entered turn four. And it was that combination of things that really allowed the Hamilton pass to stick. And I think that there's just more satisfaction to the fans and to Hamilton himself that he didn't get that last position because of penalties, he got it solely on merit despite the penalties. Does that make sense? So in, in that way, there was poetic justice to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think if, if a penalty had been applied at lap 48, then the Hamilton detractors would have said, well, he only won because Max was given a five-second penalty. This way, there can be no argument, right? You, could, you can say whether you agree with, with Max's defense in lap 48 – Ultimately, it's irrelevant. Lewis got the pass done on, on the track, fair and square. There can be, can be no argument that the better driver and, and car won on the day. So there were, in fact, other drivers on the racetrack on Sunday. Uh, Botas went on to finish third, Sergio Perez fourth. Um, we had a really strong result from Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, fifth and sixth. Pierre Gasly, another great weekend for him, although he was a lap down, finished seventh. And then it was Ocon ahead of for Alonso for Alpine, 8th and ninth, And Lando Norris in the McLaren was able to grab one last point. Daniel Ricciardo uh, did not, was not able to finish the race, nor was Lance Stroll. But uh, were there any other things going on in the race that you want to mention before we move on? Uh, yeah, there's a few things, actually. So first of all, who knew that the Brazilians loved Lewis quite so much? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a bit of a surprise, I guess. What do you think uh, of Lewis grabbing a Brazilian flag and doing that whole little bit? <laughs> that was a little odd for me. I mean, I fully respect that he wanted to show his love for Brazil, but you're not Brazilian. You, don't, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, I get it. You love the country, but I, I don't know. That, that seemed to touch odd. Uh, so it was the 30th anniversary of Senna's uh, home win. And obviously Lewis was a huge Senna fan. Of course, And yes. knows his Senna history. Uh, and so famously, was... he's the only Senna fan. Most people didn't think much of him. <laughs> I mean, you, it, it, you see, I'm joking, of course, because everyone loves, everyone loves Senna and what he achieved. That's, that's why I'm making that joke. So I saw it more of a homage to Senna than... Brazil, but I think, I think he really did appreciate the crowd support. He made the comment that there haven't been too many races since Silverstone where he actually felt the love. Yeah, he's uh, been getting a be, pretty cold shoulder. I, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. The yeah the the, the Verstappen fan fan clubs are pretty prevalent certainly throughout Europe, and and I think there is a groundswell of opinion that it'd be nice to have a different champion for the sake of the sport, and, and I could, I kind of get that to a certain degree, but ultimately you know we just want we just want a fair competition, don't we? And, and sort of let's forget about the previous years. Let's see who's the better driver and car this this season. And and the fact that the Brazilians really got behind him, I think he appreciated it. It was, it was maybe a little OTT, but it was quite amusing. And seeing as Brazil doesn't have too many drivers to cheer on these days, I think they appreciated it. So, so that, was, that was cool. I, I thought the, the Carlos Sainz-Lando Norris incident right at the start was a shame. Um, Lando got a great launch, got past Carlos on the outside, off the track. And then yes. Yes. as he tried to come back onto track, just touched wheels with Carlos and got an immediate puncture. I mean, there was, <laughs> it, wasn't, it was like an absolute, complete tire deflation instantaneously. Uh, so, yeah, his race was absolutely ruined from that moment on. And that's really handed the, the third place in the Constructors Championship to Ferrari. They're now 31 and a half points ahead of McLaren in what was a really tight battle and Ferrari just pulled away um, which is a shame for McLaren because with Ricardo's DNF they really have the season sort of fallen apart really uh, which is a shame because they were flying at one point especially after the Monza win and then the other thing that I, I really thought was quite funny was that Russell beat Latifi in the race <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that, he got was the, that was the surprise of the Brazilian Grand Prix, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is interesting that you say so. Uh, Mercedes does now have an 11-point lead over Red Bull constructors. Ferrari, as you said, is is pulling away from McLaren. Alpine and Alpha Tauri are still tied, 112 points um, each <laughs> for fifth in the constructors. That could prove tasty um, as we get into the final three Grand Prix. Um, Aston Martin is pretty much on their own in seventh, um, and it does look like Williams is It's getting more likely that they'll be able to hold on to eighth. Um, there'd have to be some pretty mega results in the last three races for Alpha Romeo to overwhelm, overcome that. It's a 12-point deficit still. It was a good battle between uh, Ocon, Alonso, and Gasly in the race, actually, um, and Alpine did did pretty well. They got uh, eighth and ninth. Uh, Gasly was seventh. So yeah, that is a tasty that is a tasty fight now. Actually, it's probably um, after the you know the Mercedes Red Bull probably the most interesting that we've got remaining in the in the constructors championship. I think from the drivers' perspective, the question is: Can Norris beat Leclerc and, and Carlos to uh, fifth? Uh, best of the rest drivers. Um, he's still got a narrow three-point lead over Charles, but as, as we were mentioning, uh, McLaren does seem to be on the back foot at the at the, uh, at the end of the season relative to Ferrari. Well, and to that end, is it going to be Leclerc or Carlos? Leclerc does have a eight and a half point lead over Carlos right now, but I don't think anyone was expecting it to be as close as it is. And uh, just as you said, I mean. Carlos showed real impressive pace in the sprint qualifying. And if that were uh, a Sunday instead of a Saturday race that that happened, you know, it could very well be Carlos Sainz, um, the lead Ferrari again. Yeah, it's it's hard to call, isn't it? I mean, Charles has had some, some strong weekends, but so has Carlos. And it does seem to be having a flowing between the two of them, which we haven't really talked about. Sergio much and I do think it's worth noting how strong his qualifying effort was again uh, it's now three races in a row where he has been pretty quick uh, in qualifying conditions 
and very close to Max. I mean, the gap between Verstappen, Bottas and Perez was, was about a tenth of a second between the three of them in, in Friday qualifying. Um, that's a good effort from Sergio. He has definitely, you know, upped his game in the last few races and is now really, you know, helping Red Bull's efforts in the in the constructors' championship and 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 Max is in the drivers' championship. So, uh, be interesting to see if he can continue that f- uh, through through to the end of the season. And the end of the season is going to be held in the Mid East. We go to Qatar next week, this coming weekend, in fact, and then it's Saudi Arabia. And we finish in Abu Dhabi. Is there anything among... I mean, I think, you know, Abu Dhabi, they've made some changes to the track to hopefully make it a little bit better for passing. I definitely hope that's the case. Um, but we it's to be seen. But uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, what do you think of those two? Yeah, it sounds like they're going to be quite fast tracks. Um, Saudi Arabia is, is going to be the fastest street course ever, isn't it? I mean, they're saying the average lap time is going to be uh, something like 160-odd miles an hour. What? On the street? <laughs> that's <laughs> like, street that's approaching Monza territory. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and of course, it's also how quickly the teams can adapt to a new new track, I think, will be another variable. Um, yeah, and what's the surface like and all those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. And the ambient temperature as well, who, the, who that will favor. So, I think it's it's going to be good that we've got a few extra unknowns to add to this really fascinating championship battle. So excited. And, you know, the third of a triple header. I mean, did you hear that the, there were problems transporting all of the, all yeah, of the equipment? Yeah. A lot from of people were scrambling Thursday night. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the teams probably need a break, but you know, there's no time now. You gotta, you gotta be on it. I think that they're going to get uh, all the way like through noon. They'll get a full half day off on Christmas, and then <laughs> and then we'll be back to it. So, so yeah, I mean you know they'll be fine. Um, well, it we we will definitely uh, be looking forward to recording another podcast after after Qatar. But for now, it is time to talk about a couple of YouTube videos, Chris. I was in Los Angeles, California last week, and I was there as a guest of Acura. Acura is owned by Honda. I think you know that, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I did two YouTube videos as a result. Um, One on the introduction of the Acura Integra prototype. That is a big deal for us folk who grow up in a certain era where the Integra was just kind of everywhere and kind of the obtainable dream car of the late teen, early 20s kid. And um, that that car is coming back. It will replace the Acura ILX. And it is a five-door hatchback. A lot of people are complaining that it's not a three-door. I'm just happy it's not an SUV. And uh, looking <laughs> forward to seeing what it's going to be. And my other video is on an SUV. It is the Acura RDX, the 2022 model year. Acura has updated that SUV for 2022 they made some improvements to the sound deadening, um, added thicker glass to improve cabin noise, and also fiddled with the shocks so that the sport mode is sportier and the comfort mode is more comfortable. Pretty amazing stuff, wouldn't you say? 
Well, I think a non-SUV is amazing enough. You, you had me at that. <laughs> That's right. And there's still lots to be. What will the Integra actually be like to drive? That is still a big, big question mark. But the RDX, as the small SUV in the lineup, drives, you know, it's above average SUV driving in the RDX. And that's that's nice because SUVs are so ubiquitous these days. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, they do a Honda and Acura. They do a lot of stiffening to the body for different trim levels. So to get the maximum out of their suspension, they actually add additional braces and struts to various points on the body to, to stiffen it up so the suspension can work more effectively. They take, they're one of the few manufacturers that really do that in terms of body content versus trim level. And it's an interesting approach, and it seems like it does pay dividends to the actual uh, driver, which is cool. It's a cool approach. Yeah, and uh, as, a, as, as an engineer that might know a thing or two about that, it's interesting to hear you uh, say that. Um, this time around for the 22 model year, it was you know, adaptive shock tuning that made the changes. Um, no braces that I'm aware of. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, they left the platform alone. But, uh, just you belts. Know, what's that? Just belt, no brace. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but your point is in, in definitely valued. You know, the TLX Type S is a really good example of that. That car is some 13% stiffer than the non-Type S to improve the handling characteristics of the car, and they did exactly that. But neither of those things are about Formula One, and we're going to stick to that for now. And we will be um, putting up a new show early next week to talk about guitar. Until then, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. That is a website. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. That is an email. I have to explain these things to the young kids. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, what a lovely afternoon. Thank you, Robin. (laughs) I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.